Welcome to The War Pod, a podcast based at Safer World asking international experts about the risks of contemporary conflict and how to address them. I'm Abigail Watson, Conflict and Security Policy Coordinator at Safer World. And I am Delina Gojo, Independent Analyst and PhD candidate at Scuola Normale Superiore. In this bonus episode, we connect up with a project for the study of the 21st century, or PS21, to launch an EIR book entitled Remote Warfare Interdisciplinary Perspectives. We will speak to Jen Gibson and Barashi Ban from Reprieve, Camilla Molyneux from the APPG Drones, and Lauren Gold and Yole Demers from the intimacies of remote warfare and the University of Utrecht, all of whom contributed a chapter on the different elements of remote warfare. Modern warfare is becoming increasingly defined by distance. Today, instead of deploying large numbers of boots on the ground, many countries have limited themselves to supporting frontline fighting of local and regional actors. To counter non-state armed groups like Boko Haram, Al-Shabaab and the Islamic State, these countries have engaged mostly through the provision of intelligence, training, equipment, air power and small deployments of special forces. This is remote warfare, a dominant method of military engagement employed by states in the 21st century. Yet even as this approach continues to be more common, we still don't really understand it, which is why Alistair McKay, Megan Carshall-Peterson and myself decided to edit a book on the topic. And all the panellists, including Delina, were kind enough to contribute a chapter. So I'm really excited that we can all come together and discuss some of the risks, the challenges and the solutions to this way of warfare. I'd like to turn to you, Lauren and Yola, to briefly explain not just what remote warfare is, but also to unpick your own work into the intimacies of remote warfare, or what you've referred to in your chapter as the paradox of remote warfare. Thanks, Abby. And I think you already explained very well what remote warfare is, or at least also how we understand it. Remote warfare is, as you say, characterized by a shift away from boots on the ground deployments towards light footprint military interventions. And it involves a combination of drone strikes and airstrikes, the use of private contractors, as well as military training teams assisting local forces to do the fighting, killing and dying on the ground. So what we see is that violence is exercised and it's facilitated, but without the exposure of often Western military men and women to opponents in a declared war zone under the condition of mutual risk, which is sort of the classic definition of, of the battlefield. And we see how particularly Western democracies increasingly resort to remote warfare to govern, as you say, security threats or different types of security threats from a distance. In our program at Utrecht University, we named our program the Intimacies of Remote Warfare, as you, as you named it. We did that because we wanted to bring out the intimate realities of this new way of war, because the term remote warfare in itself sounds very clean and very controlled and, and distant. But there's, of course, no such thing as clean war. And with this title, this reference to intimacies, we wanted to express how how war has perhaps become distant and, and sanitized for some, but remains brutal and intimate and physical to those at receiving end of it. And we also like the word intimacies because it refers to research aim that we have in that we want to really get inside the remote warfare machine and really investigate the coalitions and the deal makings, the technologies and industries and languages that together make remote warfare. Remote warfare operations, they're characterized by secrecy, claims to precision, 
and a symmetry. And the key argument that we make in the chapter is that the secrecy and the denial of remote warfare operations, they're often very classified. It's very hard to find good information on these types of operations. But also their portrayal as precise and as surgical and the asymmetrical distribution of death and suffering they entail, all those three features block democratic political deliberation on this type of warfare. So there are these three features of remote warfare that we argue will make Western liberal democracies not less, but more war prone. And that is then what we call the the remote warfare paradox. So the, the military violence executed is rendered so sanitized that it becomes uncared for and even ceases to be seen as war. I find this name that you've given to the entire project, the fact that you're calling it intimacy is particularly illuminating and it encapsulates a lot of the work that you're doing. I would like to connect to one of the things that you mentioned in your presentation, which is the fact that it's hard to find good, reliable information on what is happening with the strikes all over the world. And we are seeing this recently, not just in areas such as Pakistan, Afghanistan, but also the wider MENA region. But we're seeing this a lot happening in Mali now, this new Mm. war theater. So I would turn to Jen, perhaps, and connect this to her chapter in the book. Jen, you offered by the US of civilian casualties are very low compared to what independent NGOs and monitoring agencies present. How can we control remote killing if the US itself is unclear on how many civilians it has killed? Thanks, Selena. And I agree with respect to Yola's term and description of this is the the kind of intimacies and the paradox, because what we see with drones, which has become kind of the predominant remote warfare being waged in some areas, is this idea that they're surgical and therefore almost a willingness to use them more than you might if there were boots on the ground or military personnel on the ground. And that same remoteness that makes the use of force more likely also paradoxically makes it difficult, if not impossible, to tell whether your strikes hit the right targets and what the damage was on the ground, because there aren't boots on the ground. There aren't immediate people in in situ who can tell you who was killed. And what we've seen throughout the course of the U.S. use of drones in places like Yemen and Pakistan, outside these kind of traditional battlefields, but also inside so-called traditional battlefields, Syria, Iraq, Afghanistan, is that every time there's been an independent investigation carried out, either by journalists or human rights groups or independent monitors, they've consistently turned up more civilian casualties than the U.S. and its allies have recognized themselves. And we've had this consistent back and forth in question of what is the actual numbers of who's being killed and what their status is. And to give you just some examples, the Obama administration at the end of eight years released a set of highly anticipated, long-awaited numbers of how many billions had been killed in covert U.S. drone strikes. At the point in July when the numbers were released, nobody knew exactly how many strikes the U.S. had taken outside, quote, areas of active hostilities. Nobody knew how many people had been killed. There were monitoring groups that had been trying to gather that data, but no official estimates from the U.S. The Obama administration estimated that between 64 and 116 civilians had been killed in over 500 strikes. That was significantly lower than even the most conservative independent estimates. You had independent estimates that put the civilian casualty toll at anywhere from three to 12 times the numbers the Obama administration released. And what the Obama administration numbers really told us, um, and if you look at that range, 64 to 114 or 116, they had no idea 
how many civilians they had killed. I mean, that's a range of almost double from the lowest to the highest. That's replicated when we look in places like Syria and Iraq, where there were numbers put out by CENTCOM and the Pentagon that they estimated 1,257 civilian casualties in airstrikes. Air War is an independent monitoring body, put that number well over 7,000, six times more civilian casualties. There are a number of reasons for this. Some of it is transparency and the secrecy that surrounds it. That secrecy and transparency creates an environment where it's not possible or even contemplated that there would be dialogue between civil society and independent monitoring on the ground and the government on their civilian casualty numbers. There is the remoteness element we're talking about here today, right? You're shooting from the air 20,000 feet in the sky based on intelligence that what we find is as precise as the drone might be. The intelligence feeding the drone is often very imprecise. And it's coming from a variety of sources, one of which in which I discuss in my chapter is signals intelligence. Who's talking to who and what sort of quote patterns of life are you seeing on the ground? Those things combined, the remoteness of it, the fact that or you have a transparency problem, cloak of secrecy that prevents dialogue, and then the methods of targeting where you see heavy reliance on signals intelligence leads to a really high level of civilian casualties in some of these places and a continuing pattern of civilian casualties because mistakes in the targeting process aren't being corrected based on accurate evidence coming off the ground. As you were speaking, it made me think of the debate in the UK around this narrative that there's been only credible evidence of one civilian casualty. And it speaks to the fact that without that debate around what civilian casualties have taken place, that it perpetuates a narrative about the cleanliness of war. We spoke to senior officials within the Ministry of Defence in the UK who tried to push back against that narrative because they said that it can perpetuate an, an untrue and harmful narrative about how wars, especially in urban environments, can be fought. And I think it also links to your chapter, Barra and Camilla, where you talk about the need for a broader interpretation of civilian harm, arguing that statistics of casualties are insufficient. I'm interested to hear from you both how you would like to to see harm resulting from remote warfare measured and discussed in the future. I think to begin with, we in our chapter argue that there needs to be a recognition of the whole spectrum of harm and that this can be indirect, physical or psychological. So in our chapter, we talk to a number of people on the ground in Yemen who have experienced either special forces raids or drones flying overhead. And we write in particular about mental health harm and impacts on children's education and also on people's livelihoods. And what we see in particular in places where drones fly overhead frequently is that um, remote warfare has a significant and lasting and often constant impact on people's lives on the ground. And so that is something that we believe needs to be considered and needs to be understood by policymakers and decision makers in the US, for example, who do make these decisions as to when to deploy this kind of force. And it should be not just considered after the fact, but also considered when you make the decision of whether to deploy force. The communities that we spoke to, 
basically complained that it's not just about the immediate uh, civilian counts and some of the measures that the Obama administration tried to do at the end, which is said that we're going to include or start counting uh, the number of, uh, of civilians. It's actually that lack of human interaction. People actually didn't know where to go after a specific strike or when things go wrong. And what seems to be happening is that the U.S. trying to respond to the fact that a military, a direct military with boots on the ground is highly undesirable and very unpopular, then it promoted this idea of we can do war from distance. But for the people on the ground, it wasn't distance. They were facing that and living that on a daily basis. And the other thing is also, you cannot actually do any kind of counterterrorism without actual police work. What I mean with actual police work is that you need the full force of the law enforcement. People need to find the right bodies that they speak to, and there is, needs to be a high level of accountability and transparency when things go wrong. And that clearly was a reason of frustration, the communities that we spoke to we're experiencing. We've been talking about the surgical language that is used around drones, for example, that Jen mentioned, and that it's very proportionate, etc. But that is not at all the way people feel on the ground. If you have drones flying over constantly, it doesn't feel discriminate at all. It feels indiscriminate because you never know when you might be targeted. This presentation of yours and your chapter in the book speak volumes to the um, intimacies definition given by Lauren and Yola. This issue of of drones flying overhead made me think of, a, I think it was a piece of research or something that came up on the Atlantic back in 2013, where researchers analyzed the rate of miscarriages in Yemen caused by drone strikes. And so how uncomfortable, in a, in a dramatic sense, women were in, in those circumstances. This was a 2013 piece. What has happened since? Where are we now? What is going on? And I suppose this question could be directed at academic research mostly. So what is the future of research in this field? And I would direct this question at Lauren and, and Yolle. Yeah, so we've talked about a lot about the US. The US very much pioneers in these strategies and technologies, but we also see a lot of countries and EU countries and Canada following suit and unfortunately not following suit in learning from the lessons learned that we've just been talking about, but following suit in using and acquiring and buying the same technologies and strategies. And um, what we've observed, Yola and I, really, in, in our latest article, when we started writing about remote warfare, we coined the concept liquid warfare in 2018. And then we, we've seen these shifts from long distancing to remote knowing to remote decision making. And I'll kind of talk you through those, those shifts that we've come across in our empirical research. So first, when we coined the, the term liquid warfare, we really saw remote warfare largely in terms of long distancing. So like we've already discussed, this removal of Western military bodies from the actual battlefields across Africa and the Middle East and relying on local partners to do the fighting and dying, but also to provide us with a certain amount of intelligence on where to pull in certain airstrikes. Now, you know, Western vast militaries have been faced with these civilian casualties, numbers, a lot of contestation by NGOs, and some of them present today. And what we see instead of questioning the logic of this violence and seeing whether we're indeed 
need achieving our political or military strategies by this remote violence. Instead, we see increasing experimentation with remote knowing. So kind of trying to surpass our local partners, and Jen already discussed this, how America is very much leading the game on this. They're increasingly relying on drone footage, satellite, phone, email, intelligence, surveillance, and then collection of metadata to track what we might deem as abnormal or normal behavior in, in these complex political conflicts. So we see a very strong datification of warfare and relying on the idea that we no longer need any types of boots on the ground, not our own, but also no longer our local partners to understand what's driving these conflicts and how we should best respond. And with this mass scale of collection of data, we also see a shift towards remote decision making. So we're now seeing a shift, what's now increasingly called as the new arms race, the AI arms race, this shift towards algorithms as a way to sift through all this data that's being collected and decide what is you know, normal and abnormal behavior and make this data actionable towards targeting some individuals. And we see how ministries of defense are really teaming up with the tech industry, the Silicon Valley industry, and for example, uh, Google in the Project Maven to develop these algorithms. And I think what's really important, what the military calls themselves, these new alliances with the tech industry and experimenting with these technologies, they call prototype warfare. And they really talk about it in terms of experimentation, right? We're just experimenting new technologies. These are the solutions to previous failures. Um, and this is what Marianne Hoiting has really coined as prototyping warfare. But I think for the audience today, it's really important to realize that this experimentation is not just being taking place on populations elsewhere or in the global south. This experimentation is taking place closer to home in the Netherlands, which is my home. We discovered only four months ago through wonderful work of investigative journalists, the Dutch military was so eager to develop this ability to use algorithms on mass data that they had started tracking our behavior during COVID times. Now, this was done without any parliamentary consent and was against all privacy regulations. And what was really interesting to notice the language was used when they were confronted with this. You know, our Minister of Defence said she did not know that this was happening. So she played the secrecy kind of denial card. But she also said, oh, it was just, you know, we were just experimenting. There's nothing wrong with that. So they're also kind of taking on this Silicon Valley language of fail, fail better and fail again, right? So we failed at civilian harm. Now we're going to experiment with outsourcing decision making to algorithms, what's now by some academics called the AI commander, which I think is a great example. And what does that mean, right? And why do we see that in the Netherlands now? Well, the Netherlands has just bought their first MQ Reaper drones. So with bringing in the drones, this has opened, you know, a whole new market for the datification of warfare. And we're seeing already a, a lean towards um, the weaponization of these drones. And this is happening, you know, in the Netherlands, but also in Germany and Canada. All these strategies have a long history. And also um, the US has been pioneering them. But, I, you know, like Jen already no notified, they also have a long history of really detrimental consequences that we can learn from, but militaries seem to not be learning from them, but seem to be <laughs> embracing them as the best solution at hand once again. I mean, this is not new, so it's not connected to the future trends thing. But of course, in, in COVID time, there was this logic of emergency as well. So yeah. This is urgent. This is an emergency. We're not going to do it again. It's just in this specific circumstance. 
if you zoom out a bit, is what it is that we're describing when we talk about remote warfare is really a shift in our understanding what warfare is, really. So sort of the fundamental definition of what war is. So we see that we're moving away from classic and geocentric conceptualization of war to a much more target-centric idea. War is no longer confined to a declared zone of conflict, to a classic battlefield where the rules of, of war apply. But in a way, and that's also what Lauren maybe referred to, the, the whole world is a, is a battlefield or, or rather a hunting ground. So we see a fundamental transformation of warfare from the use of mutual violence in a declared war zone, classic notion, to a unilateral use of force anywhere, anytime in the world, sort of from drone strikes to target killings and, and airstrike. And then again, these attacks are, are often executed in secrecy under the medical discourse of precision and care, and they have almost zero risks for, for those Western forces who are in, involved in it. So we're also looking at something fundamentally new in the sense that we see that, that yeah, a, a redefinition, a reconceptualization of what war is. We need to think that through too. And of course, the essence of war has always been the uncertain reworking of meaning, truth and order through violent means. But we're very much in the midst of that process of a new conceptualization of war, where from the Bush global war on terror and the Obama administration, the ground wars in Afghanistan and Iraq, to the drone programs and the targeted killings and the airstrikes in Libya and in Syria and Iraq. And then we had Trump with his drone strike on this, this Iranian general Soleimani, who is an official representative of a foreign country. So we see constant new ways of warfare becoming thinkable and become practiced and then become normalized. And it's really important to trace these changes and to, to critique them and to make them strange and to debate them. Because I think that's what we all share in our research, that it's very hard to empirically find, you know, good evidence to bring this story and to sort of make strange what is for to be kept in the dark. There's this fundamental uh, change in what war is and is imagined to be. There's these two trends, which I see, see that again, for instance, in the UK Defence Command paper, we noticed both this shift towards war being everywhere. And what does that mean for both the application of international humanitarian law, but then how we treat domestic space? I was struck as well as you were speaking, it sort of reminded me of another chapter in the book by Rossi and Ryman, who talk about how remote warfare doesn't leave the country, it originates from untouched, and that it does have an impact in the country that it comes from through the ways that you outlined, Lauren, but then in other ways around how we conceptualise sacrifice and risk and how we conceptualise national identity. So I thought that was really interesting. And then the second theme that ran through everything was this idea that there's a perpetual desire to try and make technology overcome the complexities of war, that if we just use enough technology, then we can make war simpler. That was really striking in, in your chapter, Jen. You reflect on some of the key issues of identifying targets in complex political situations through collecting metadata on patterns of behaviour and letting algorithms decide what is abnormal behaviour. I wonder what has recent history taught us about outsourcing these decisions to algorithms? I think what you have happening is this convergence of big data with the development of the drone. And I think it's hard to separate the two, even when you're talking about the US drone program, because while we might just be now as academics and investigators and researchers starting to grapple with the role that data is playing in targeting in a remote warfare, 
The reality is the U.S. has been using data as a key component of this program for almost a decade now, if not longer. And what enabled the kind of expansion of the program in places like Pakistan was this ability to collect and analyze massive amounts of data to try to identify patterns. And for the U.S. drone program in particular, in the way targeting was working and is working, what we saw in Pakistan and the shift from the Bush administration to the Obama administration was one where you shifted from a targeting program for the most part that was going after high value targets of known identities, very small numbers of strikes to under the Obama administration, the addition and expansion of something called signature strikes. These were strikes where the identity of the individual was not known, is not known, but where you were targeting based on patterns of behavior. (laughs) And I've been along around too long at this point. And remember back in 2011, 2012, people in Pakistan saying, we're swapping SIM cards because we think they're hitting phones. And thinking at the time, Okay, well, if they are hitting phones, you swapping SIM cards is likely to raise all kinds of red flags, right? But for the people on the ground, it had become a behavioral change in response to what was coming from above in an attempt to protect themselves that actually made them more likely to be targeted. And there were reports and when the signature strikes and how they were being carried out first hit the media in a New York Times article in 2012, there was a quote, anonymous Obama official and there is someone saying, you know, Leon Panetta, who was head of the CIA at the time, he sees three men in a field doing jumping jacks, and he thinks it's a terrorist training camp. What we then found out a few years later through Michael Hayden, again, former director of the CIA, is actually it was a lot more complex than that. And what they were doing was hoovering up a lot of intelligence, running it through some algorithms, and picking out nodes that appeared to be connected. And Michael Hayden point blank said at a meeting and probably didn't mean to be on the record, told in answer to a question, we kill people based on metadata. And you've then had subsequent whistleblowers come out and one who was in Afghanistan say people get hung up on the idea that we're targeting individuals. Really what we're doing is we're targeting cell phones and hoping the person on the other end is the bad guy. And this is where, as we've seen history progress, we've not actually seen a grappling with whether signature strikes are accurate or whether you can ever identify a signature pattern of, quote, terrorist behavior in a context where you don't have boots on the ground, you don't understand the local culture, you don't understand tribal allegiances and political dynamics at play, and who's a brother of who, you know, you get into very complex on the ground dynamics, where behavior that can look suspicious is anything but. And in the book, one of the strikes I talk about is the case of Faisal bin Ali Jabber, where his brother-in-law, Salam, was an imam who actually had preached against Al-Qaeda days before he got killed. And the sermon was so strongly against Al-Qaeda that it attracted three youth. Nobody knows who they were. Nobody knows how old they were. Nobody knows where they came from to the village to talk to him. I think the assumption of the villagers was that he was, they were probably somehow aligned with Al-Qaeda, but they didn't know. They came to talk to him about his sermon. He stepped out with his nephew and local policemen to talk to them, and all five were killed in a drone strike within minutes of him stepping out. To this date, the U.S. still hasn't acknowledged Faisal's family members as civilians, despite a cable in the immediate aftermath saying that they had made a mistake. And what we think almost certainly happened was it was a signature strike. They were tracking these three men. 
it then raises all kinds of questions. And again, when you're talking about what has history taught us, history's taught us that we've not learned from our lessons. That again and again, there have been lessons to learn and they've not been learned. Those three men passed two checkpoints before they hit the village. <laughs> they could have been arrested several times. They could have been hit if they were that much of a danger in the miles and miles of desert they passed before they got to this remote village, but they weren't. And so what you have as the program has progressed is a cycle where you think about algorithms and AI, it only works when the program can learn from itself, when it's a loop of information and it's being fed information that corrects mistakes and alters. And, you know, setting aside whether you could ever get the algorithm to a point where you could do what the US and its allies are trying to do with algorithms and targeting, the reality is that there's no feedback loop right now. There is no correction of the algorithm. And we know from the way this technology is now replicated itself at the domestic level, like Lauren was talking about, you know, you see it in the US with facial recognition by policing forces. For 100 years now, we've more we see war comes home. It comes home in the form of technology. It's now on the streets. It's being used by police. And at the domestic level, it's highly inaccurate. So if the domestic level, it's inaccurate where you have better data and you can feed in and try to fix the algorithms. And, and it's using facial recognition on Caucasians and people where it is a higher rate of positivity. Imagine how bad it is in a context where you don't understand the culture. You don't understand patterns of behavior. You don't understand relationships. I want to stay on the humans uh, at the other end, despite, of course, the data conversation being extremely necessary. And turn to Camilla and Bara once again. So, so in your chapter, you both use language, which is quite personal. You offer the names, the age and position um, in the family of victims um, of remote warfare operations in Yemen. What was the logic behind this choice? And do you believe this should be common practice when referring to victim of, of remote warfare operations? Our motivation going into this was to try and highlight the voices that aren't considered, at least not a lot in conversations around remote warfare, and to counterbalance the largely US-created narrative around drones, which we've heard here today uses very intentionally surgical language, removing the human element from Um, remote warfare. To do that, we believed that it was really crucial to humanize the conversation. And to do that, we believed it was important to, when we could use the words of the people on the ground and to, to let the reader sort of get to know the people that we were talking to. And I think we've talked previously about how Statistics doesn't show the entire picture. And looking at some of the quotes that we did include in the chapter, for example, speaking to a mother who was from a village, she told me when I was in Yemen and interviewing people, she said that their village experienced drones flying above two to four times a month. And that every single time they heard drones, she said, Uh, when they, talking about the children, hear the drones, they run home from school calling for their mothers, then everyone gets into their cars and evacuates the village. That's a village of 1,900 people, two to four times a month evacuating their village. 
that has incredible impact on the people on the ground. And it's through their words that we can start to understand or have conversations about the real impact on the ground. And that's why we thought highlighting their voices and in their own words and showing how much remote warfare impacts people in all positions in society, really, and of all ages was so important. And Jen talked about, for example, Faisal as well, who said, and we included a quote from him in the book where he says, every day we kiss our loved ones goodbye, not knowing if we will see them again. It is like living in a constant nightmare from which we cannot wake up. We need to hear these things to understand the true impact of this surgical remote deployment of force on the ground. It was the same uh, the same logic. It was hard to, to to find a way how we can explain this really without quoting the people uh, directly. And uh, it is something that you go there yourself and I've visited many of the of the places where drone strikes have um, have occurred. And the experience itself just by living there and I know I was going in for a short period and then leaving and it was very, very frightening. And I couldn't imagine what would have happened if I remained there like uh, my entire life. And in the specific examples that we've shared, the communities had also to, in, in some of the cases, being displaced because of the amount of drone strikes that followed the the raid on the village of Yakla, for example. And what, what was clear is that people were seeking answers. They didn't find answers. And then nothing can explain this, I think, better than telling the, the story of the people themselves. And unlike where in the US, for example, when people have faced uh, police brutality, people were able to film it or actually see it on camera. That's the only way that can people actually bring it as close as possible. And that's why I think there needs to be a way that the U.S. will find a way to communicate with the people. They need to add that human element that they can find a reconciliation with those with those people. But again, it comes back to the same question. There needs to be that human element people are able to interact with. There needs to be this level of interaction, accountability, and transparency that even when things go wrong, they can go back and talk to the people, and then we can see a reaction. Because even police do violations, uh, they do do certain harm, but they only learn from when people see the after effect. We saw this with George Floyd in the US. We've seen this, for example, with what happened in Gaza over the last week. People actually were seeing the after effect and listening to the stories. That's, that's I think, is the, is the only way that people can make sense of what is happening on the ground you've found a way to reshape the debate and potentially provide a solution to one of the the huge problems that are facing us when we think about remote warfare. I, I want to throw the last question out to, to everyone else to say, as you were grappling with some of the problems of remote warfare, what solutions did you come up with to some of the issues that it presents? We're in democratic societies and Yola and I live in the Netherlands. So we decided to do a very similar research to Camilla and Barra, but then on an airstrike conducted by the Netherlands in Hawija, Iraq in 2015, in which 70 civilians, over 70 civilians died and up to four to 500 buildings were destroyed. The Dutch actually government denied responsibility for this attack for four and a half years. In similar with the UK, um, for a very long time, denied any civilian casualties in the aftermath of their involvement in the anti-IS um, coalition. But then when 
it did come to the public eye, there was a lot of kind of denial, secrecy, and a lot of ignorance about what we could know about the civilian casualties that had occurred in the after the immediate aftermath and the long-term aftermath of this attack. And a lot of statesmen saying, you know, it's it's so long ago we can't we can't know no, um, and therefore you know we can end the discussion. And we felt it was very important together to the Intimacies of Remote Warfare Program together with Pax for Peace, uh, the largest conflict and peace uh, NGO in the Netherlands, to prove that you can know and that you can investigate uh, the civilian harm that's done and the blowback effects by going to, yes, insecure, but accessible areas and and talking to people themselves. So this is what we've picked up on doing and and rolling out in collaboration with a local organisation, a large-scale research, um, conducting over 100 interviews with those that were uh, targeted in this particular strike. And we don't just want to bring this information, this knowledge to the public, as we do are here doing today and to the parliament, trying to awaken them up to the idea, you know, these these are the wars that are waged in our name with our tax money. And we need to know throughout operations what are actually taking place and sure that we can hold power to account. But we also, in, in conversations with the Ministry of Defence here in the Netherlands, one of the issues, of course, with remote warfare is that military themselves are also no longer experiencing or seeing the detrimental consequences of these remote interventions. So we try and bring with our societal partners, including PACs, but also Amnesty, Air Wars, Open State Foundation, this knowledge to the table and convince them why it's really important to monitor civilian harm, um, also for them to you know, feel for whether their strategic aims are actually being achieved. You know, Many of these operations are, are sold to us in bringing enduring security. Well, if this mass scale kind of civilian harm is taking place, can these aims actually be achieved and what are the long-term consequences and how does this kind of violence feed into new cycles of violence? So this conversation uh, with the MOD is also one of the ways that we try to change <laughs> this type of warfare. I think another because this is a, this is a very dark topic and it's very easy to get very depressed We're investigating this and also maybe listening to this podcast but I think there's also indeed there's solutions and there's there's reasons to also be a bit hopeful because remote warfare in many ways helps to overcome this this massive problem that democratic governments particularly are faced with and that is you know the problem of the cost of war in terms of human lives and expenditure. And for many governments, you know, turning to remote warfare and distancing is a solution to bringing those costs down. So in many ways, liberal democracies are the ones who who are most prominently joining into this or leading new forms of warfare. And and we could say, ironically, perhaps, that democratic institutions and their publics have been central factors constituting the turn to remote warfare. But on the other hand, the good news is, of course, that you know, these are democracies. So this means that we as citizens and elected members of parliament do have the room to bring this to the fore, to debate it, to try and contain it and to restrain the use of force. So that's the element of hope that we have at the program by bringing this evidence and bringing these voices and, and making our analyses as transparent and trying to speak a language that the larger public can understand. And I think having these personal stories and images coming out of these theatres of war are incredibly important, maybe the most important part, then we can try and change the debate and have people vote differently or have MPs in Parliament decide differently because it's mostly democratic states who actually are in the lead 
of this new type of war. We did speak to, for example, to the to the local authority. Uh, Camilla had the chance to meet actually the head of the security services, and I uh, I did speak, for example, with the with the local governor in several in, in several provinces. And one example was the governor of Marib, who actually told us very clearly that he has urged the U.S. officials in constant meetings that he wants uh, any operations to be bound when, within the uh, Yemeni rule of law. He needs to be able to provide answers to his local communities um, when you know when things go uh, go wrong. Because at the end of the day, they are, uh, he said, we uh, we are facing uh, questions about uh, we need to provide answers. Uh, because of something that it is not in our control. Uh, we we are not in control of the program, but yet we have to provide answers for our local community. And I think that briefly links to the bigger questions about the effectiveness of this kind of strategy and to what degree the outcomes that the US, for example, is seeking in Yemen, if they're at all actually reaching these outcomes. And if counterterrorism, as we know it today, is a strategy that is at all effective, there's data suggesting suggesting that there are more, for example, Salafi jihadists across the world today and more attacks than 20 years ago when this strategy was or this way of fighting terrorism began. Thank you very much. And thank you to everyone who listened. We hope you enjoyed the discussion as much as we did. We will release every new episode on the 20th of every month. And you can listen to all previous episodes wherever you get your podcasts by searching for Warpod or following us at Twitter at war underscore pod. Thank you and see you next time. Mm